1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, after Saul's victory over the Ammonites, Samuel speaks to the people and charges them to continue to follow the Lord. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. The title of the message is a heart of submission.
2: 1 Samuel chapter 12. Remember the whole theme of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart, and so we've been getting lessons from some good examples and then lessons from some bad examples. Right now we're in a situation that we're going to get a little bit of both in this chapter here. Saul has finally been crowned king. The nation is united behind him. Israel throws a huge celebration at Gilgal to commemorate the momentous occasion. That's where we left off in chapter 11. So everything's good for the nation now, right? Eh, Not quite. Not really. Because the way they got here was wrong. The way they got here was wrong. And so before everyone heads back home from this celebration, Samuel confronts the nation so that they can move forward correctly. That they won't stay in this defiance toward the Lord, but rather that they would have hearts that are submitted to him. Because the only way Israel can move forward correctly is to have a heart of submission. So chapter 12, we begin in verse 1. It says, And Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that you said unto me, and I have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray headed and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith? And I will restore it to you. And they said, Well, you have not defrauded us nor oppressed us, neither have you taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. What's going on here? Well, Samuel, he's confronting the rebellion against his leadership. God raised him up to be the judge. And as he explains to them, okay, you're here, everybody's happy, you got what you wanted, but let's address how we got here. (laughs) And how we got here was not good. Samuel starts off by explaining, you have a king now, I'm stepping back. In verses 1 and 2, Samuel says, And then, behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. I've done everything you demanded. It was indeed a rocky start with this king stuff, but things look like they're going well now. But you need to understand the consequences of this change, because it does change everything. He says, behold, the king walks before you. I mean, he's leading you now. I am old. I'm great-headed He says, behold, my sons are with you. I'm no longer your leader. I'm old and gray-headed. I'm going to be transitioning out of this role. Saul's now your leader. You're not going to be looking to me anymore. I've also removed my sons from leadership. They're with you now instead of with me and Saul up here as leaders. They're right out there with you. They're not judges anymore. Imagine how difficult that must have been for Samuel. But he did the right thing. They were not good men. They were not good leaders. He removed them. He says, behold, my sons are with you. But then he says this. I'm still here. He says, I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. The phrase walk before you doesn't mean I've lived rightly before you or even that you could see my whole life. It literally means to lead a flock like a shepherd would. He says, from the days of my youth, I've led you like a shepherd. I've taken care of you. I have been faithful. And since he had been faithful to shepherd them and care for them from day one, from his youth, it meant that asking for a king was completely uncalled for on their part. He says, behold, here I am. Witness against me. In other words, here I am. What reason did you have for rebelling against my leadership, for rejecting my leadership? Witness against me before the Lord and before his king, his anointed. Bring your accusations in front of the Lord and before your new leader. Because I don't just want to leave here with a clear conscience, which I have. I want to leave here with a clear name. He says, whose ox have I taken? The word there means to seize. Did I steal anyone's ox? Did I steal anyone's donkey? Whom have I defrauded? The word there means to treat a disadvantaged member of society unjustly. In other words, did I ever take advantage of my authority and my power, my influence? Did I ever take advantage of someone who was disadvantaged? Disadvantaged? Whom have I oppressed? The word there means to crush someone. It usually means of causing harm through violence. Did I ever use my authority or power to violently make people follow me? Of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind my eyes therewith? Say it now and I'll restore you. I leave this role with a clear conscience, but I want to know. Do you think I've done a good job as a leader? Do I have a clear name in front of you? It's interesting. They said unto him, You have not defrauded us nor oppressed us, neither have you taken aught of any man's hand. There's almost a bit of shell shock in their answer there. Uh, No, you haven't done any of that. Why are you asking us this? You see, they hadn't realized the wrong they'd committed against Samuel by asking for a king. Samuel surely wasn't perfect, but he'd been a good leader and with unassailable character. He's one of the godliest people we find in all of Scripture. The people could trust him, and they did so their entire life. He never took advantage of them, but they had treated him like a failure in the end. And so by admitting publicly that Samuel hadn't done anything worthy of being rejected, they actually condemned themselves as those who have done him wrong. And so that's why Samuel says, the Lord, in verse 5, he says, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed. The Lord has heard what you've said today, and your king, the one who can punish you right now for your wrong, he has heard your confession that I didn't do anything wrong to you, that you have not found aught in my hand. (laughs) And now you can see that it's starting to dawn on them a little bit. They said, he is witness. (laughs) Whose head's going on the chopping block here? I'll get to this in a moment. I think it's important to bring up something. And I realize not everyone may agree with me on this. However, I do think it worthy to point out that Samuel defends his time as a judge by appealing to his personal character, not his policies or procedures as a leader. There are many in the church, many church leaders who are claiming that leaders should be chosen based on their policies and procedures rather than character. I would ask them, can you please show me where you find such a principle in Scripture? because I do not find that principle anywhere in scripture. Every leader I look at in the Bible, whether they were a prophet, a judge, pastor, deacon, king, their selection was always based on character requirements. Not even once are their policies examined or their procedural plans examined. God says it's righteousness that exalts a nation and wickedness is a reproach to any people. So God's evaluation of kings and princes is always based on their character. And God condemns them if their character was evil, even when they brought prosperity to the nation every single time. Proverbs is full of wisdom about what makes a good leader. What I have seen is that church leaders have decided we don't need God's wisdom on these issues anymore. Our understanding of history, politics, and economics is superior to that simplistic type of idealism to which I would say, beware ignoring scripture. Beware leaning on our own understanding. Because the only way to a straight path is doing things God's way. The only way to a straight path is trusting the Lord with all our hearts and not leaning on our own understanding. Now, we look at what Samuel does here, and it can almost sound a little vindictive. Like, yeah, I'm not the king anymore. This guy is, and now I'm going to tell him to get you because now I've got you guilty on record. But I don't think Samuel's trying to be vindictive here. In fact, I don't think Samuel exposes their injustice towards him for any personal reasons. He does so because he doesn't want them repeating these mistakes after he's gone. Because their wrong treatment towards him is evidence of a much deeper problem in their lives. Look at verse 6. He goes on to say, and Samuel said unto the people, it is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, he says, this problem didn't start with me as your leader. This is a problem that stems all the way back to the first leaders God raised up, Moses and Aaron, So he says, now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. Your rebellious attitude was there from day one. So I want you to stand still. The phrase here means to present yourself to the Lord. It actually means to prepare to defend yourself before the Lord. It's similar to calling a witness to the stand. You're going to make a defense of yourself. And so he says, Come up, present yourself, that I may reason with you. It means to make an argument in a court of law. I'm going to present my argument to you, and you're going to listen to me because it's important. Of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. He says, I'm going to do this before the Lord. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. The Lord is the judge of all the earth, and he will have the final say whether I agree or not, whether you agree or not. So I'm going to make my argument before the Lord, he says, which will become important later on. And what he wants to argue before them is that God had never failed them throughout the entirety of their relationship with him. And therefore, they had no reason to complain about the system of leadership that the Lord set up for them. That's his argument. God never failed you in your entire relationship with him. And therefore, it was wrong for you to complain about the system of leadership he set up. And so he begins with his argument in verse 8. He says, When Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place, the promised land. And when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. So he starts off here by saying, listen, when Jacob came down into Egypt and the Egyptians enslaved them, your fathers cried unto the Lord, God, help us out, get us out of this mess. And What happened? he says, the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and brought them to this beautiful land that he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Now, God didn't owe Israel anything. He didn't have to do any of these things. We read in the book of Deuteronomy, read in the book of Exodus, when God set up all these laws, it was because they had learned all these horrible things in Egypt. They had become idolaters in Egypt. They had forgotten the truths that Abraham lived by, and they were living in sin, God didn't have to answer those cries. He could have ignored them. But he did something marvelous for Israel instead. Brought them into the promised land. But verse 9 says, when they forgot the Lord, the word there means to ignore, to overlook, to lose sight of something's significant. Despite the awesome thing that God did to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land, when they forgot him, it says that the Lord sold them into, and then he references these three instances that we covered in the book of Judges. I'm not going to go over them again. These were the consequences, the consequences that were laid out in the covenant God made with them, in the the law in Deuteronomy, in the law in Exodus, in the law in Leviticus. These were the consequences of violating their covenant with God. What he is explaining to them, he goes, God didn't initiate that process. It's not like God just woke up one day and go said, You know, I don't want to keep my part anymore. I'm done. Have Adam, Amorites, you know, have Adam, Philistines. God didn't do that. They did something to initiate this problem. They forgot the Lord. And when they did that, the Lord allowed these enemies, he sold them into their hands. They initiated this by rebelling against God, by rejecting his rule. And again, God didn't have to do anything to help Israel at that point. they had already violated the covenant. They got what they deserved. But Samuel goes on in verse 10 to explain that the Lord showed mercy when they repented. And they cried unto the Lord, again, called out for help, and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and we have served, which means to worship the Baalim and the Ashtaroth. These were idols. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. We'll worship you again, God. Now, God didn't have to bring them back into the covenant. They had violated it already. And it's almost interesting here. You know, he says, you guys, you came to me and said, we want a king. We don't like the way God set things up. It's not working out for us. And it's like Samuel's reminding me, he goes, have you forgotten? You're the ones that asked God to step back into this leadership role. You realized your mistake and you wanted Him to lead you again. You acknowledged that it was your fault, not the Lord's fault, that you ended up in this mess. That the failure wasn't in the system that God set up for you, but it was in your failure to submit to it. I have many areas in my life that still need growth. I'm far from God who wants me to be as a Christian. But if I'm to have any hope to progress forward in my spiritual growth, I have to be honest with myself and with him. I can't excuse my sin or blame the Lord's way of doing things. That's what Israel had done. This really isn't our fault. All these oppressions we've experienced over the years, we're tired of it. And again, if I were God, thankfully I'm not, I would have said, well, then stop rebelling. It's not my fault that these things are happening. It's your fault. But what did they do? No, it's the system God set up. We've got too much haphazardness going on here. We don't know who our next judge is going to be, and we don't have any stability, and we, we can't unite the tribes. We need a king. That'll be the answer. Its problem isn't us. The problem's God's system. And I will never, if that's my attitude, I will never be able to progress forward in my spiritual growth. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is logio. It means to say, logio, homo, the same thing, to say the same thing. So when I'm confessing my sin, what I'm doing is I'm agreeing with what God says about my wrong behavior and how my behavior needs to change moving forward. That's what confession is. It's not just going, I blew it. It's saying, no, Lord, my behavior is you say it's supposed to be here and it's here. And the only way that I'm going to get things right is to start doing what you say here. I need to change. I need to change my behavior. That's what confession is. Now, obviously, we need the Lord's help to change. I'm not implying legalism. That's not my point here. The idea is, though, the starting point of that change is agreeing with God, being humble. Now, when we do confess our sin, does that mean that life will be a path filled with gumdrops and rose petals afterwards? Of course not. But a heart of submission is the only way I can truly make spiritual progress. It's the only way. And so verse 11, when they did this back then, the Lord forgave and rescued them when they confessed their sin. Verse 11, the Lord sent Jerob That was the name that the people gave to Gideon when he answered God's call to be their judge. And then Bedan, we don't know who Bedan is. He wasn't even mentioned in the book of Judges. So this is some other leader that God raised up to rescue them. And Jephthah, who we already met in the book of Judges. And then, of course, Samuel references himself. He helped them to victory over the Philistines. The Lord sent all these men and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And guess what? You dwelled what? What does it say? How did they dwell? Safe. Safe. The word there means safe. In confidence, feeling secure. Wasn't that the reason they asked for a king? We don't feel safe. We don't feel secure. And Samuel reminds them, when you cried out to the Lord, and you submitted to him, and he raised up a judge, and you followed his lead, you were secure. You were confident. Everything was stable. The flaw was never with God's system. You were always safe and secure when you submitted to the Lord's leadership, so he asks the question, he goes, what changed this time to make you throw all that away for your own plan for a king? Verse 12. And here we get some extra information we didn't have before earlier in 1 Samuel. He says, and when you saw that Nahas, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. You already had a king. Now, this is fascinating to me because Samuel doesn't tell any of this to us before when all of a sudden we hear about him and they come to Samuel and demand a king. We don't know there's an invasion. The first time we hear about the Ammonites is when they lay siege to Jabesh Gilead, right? We don't realize when we're reading chapter 11, that's the end of the invasion. The beginning has already happened. They've already conquered a bunch of area on the eastern side, the Transjordan, and now that's just the last place. So this is why they finally came to Samuel and said, it's not working, it's not working, we're being invaded, we need a king. Samuel finally confronts what brought them to this place. God's system's not working, Samuel. We've got another invasion. There's no way we can get all the tribes together to fight it. We're going to go down one tribe at a time, just like every other time before, and we'll experience another 20-year oppression, just like we did in the past. We need a king to unite us. That's their thought. That's their idea. We need a king. That's the only way we can be united. And being united is the only way we can defeat the Ammonites. And thus we come full circle to their betrayal. Those past oppressions, were they ever because of invasions? No, they were because they rebelled against the Lord. So here's their problem with their logic and why Samuel has to confront this. Their plan to avoid a new period of oppression, which is always caused by not submitting to the Lord, their plan to avoid a new period of oppression is what? Not submitting to the Lord. That's like saying, we're going to solve our mice problem by just getting more mice. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good plan. No, it'll work, I swear. That's the type of logic issue we've got here. They're not seeing things clearly. Their entire argument for a king was flawed because they didn't own the reason they claimed they needed a king for in the first place. Their refusal to submit to the one who already was their king, the Lord. Every past period of oppression was God's discipline for their sin. So, to combat this Ammonite invasion, what did they have to do? They just had to trust the Lord, right? Submit to him. But instead, they ignored all those past failures, and they just trusted themselves. And so when Samuel hears about the invasion and points this out, he goes, that's not the answer. You already have a king. The Lord's your king. They said, no, nay, no. And that was their betrayal. They blamed the Lord's leadership failure for their past problems, and they said, we're not going to let God do it again. He's let us down in the past we're not going to let him do it again. Give us a king. Now, the reason Samuel must point this out before stepping down is because they had never seen it this way. In their mind, they had never seen it that way before. They really thought that they were justified in their demand for a king. They thought it was logical, practical, and righteous. And that is the very definition of leaning on my own understanding (laughs) is when I do something because I think it's logical, practical, and righteous, even when it directly contradicts scripture. So even though things may look great right now, Samuel says, you guys still have a problem. And so in verse 13, he says this, now, therefore, behold the king whom you've chosen and whom you have desired. And behold this, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both you and also the king that reigns over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. Your king will not save you from me. Samuel tells him, even though you got your way, the Lord's still in charge. He says, behold, look at your king. You you wanted a king? Take a good look at this man because he's the fruit of all your demands. All right? The fruit of your plans, he's here. But don't forget this. There's two beholds here. Behold the king whom you've chosen and whom you desired. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Which means who's still the king? The Lord's still the king. He says, take a good look at the man that you asked for, the fruit of your plans. But make sure you take a good hard look at why we're all here today. It's because you didn't pick him. The Lord picked him. He's the one who got us to this point. He's the one who gave us victory over the Ammonites. And if you want things to keep going well, then you need to change your mindset. You need to repent. In verse 14, he says, if you will fear the Lord. The phrase if means, oh, if only. Samuel's not communicating, if you do this. He's saying his wish. If only, he says, you would fear the Lord. If only you would love what God loves and hate what he hates. If only you would serve him instead of other gods. If only you would obey his voice and not rebel, defy against the authority of his commandments. My wish is if you'll do that, then I don't care that you have a king. I don't care that I'm not leading you. You'll be fine because the Lord will be your king as it should be in the beginning. But he says, if you will not do that, then God's going to do the same thing he did before. This very thing you're worried about will happen again. Israel's trend had not been to fear the Lord, to serve him and to submit to his commandments. They did worship other gods. They ignored God's word. They did what was ever right in their own eyes. But if they would do what Samuel wished for them, then things would be great going forward from here. But if they stick with their trend, if they don't repent, they're in big trouble. He says, you will end up in the very situation that you've worked so hard to avoid by setting up this king. You'll end up in the same situation. And it won't matter that you have a king instead of a judge leading you.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.